Well, hey there, everyone. I'm Daniel Hahn, and I'm the online campus pastor here at Oxford Assembly of God Church, and this is our podcast. And I just want to thank you for listening today. We hope the message you're about to hear inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you see that God has a purpose for your life. And now, let's get into the message. Throughout the Bible, we see the word, the hand of God. The hand of God. Matter of fact, the word hand is used in the NIV uh, almost 850 times. And the Hebrew word for hand is yad, Y-A-D. And it literally means hand or side, the border, alongside of, at, uh, come along uh, my right hand, a hand measure, a portion, an armrest, manhood and power and rule. Easton's Bible commentary says it's a symbol of human action. But then Fawcett gives this definition. The hand is symbolic or symbol of skill, energy, and action. Strength of hand. To kiss the hand expresses what? Adoration. Feel one's hand is consecrating a priest. To lift up the hand is to do what? I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. The hand is raised uh, to give the hand means that assures the faithfulness and friendship. You know, give your hand in marriage. That's all of those things. The hand of God is his eternal purpose and his executive power. The hand of the Lord on the prophets is the Holy Spirit's extraordinary and powerful impulse. So when we talk about the hand of God, it covers a whole, whole gamut of throwings. But I could just like to tell you, how many of you would agree with me that you've seen the hand of God in your life? Amen. You've seen the hand of God in your life, and it has been good. It has been good. I can tell you, God's hand has directed me. God's hand has blessed me. God's hand has protected me, and I could go on and on. One of the greatest blessings is that God says that her name is what? Written on the palm of his hand. So thank God for the hand of God. But I believe God has brought something to my attention, something that I would like to ignore. For those of you that's ever preached or shared a lesson you know that there's some things that you just wish you didn't have to say. It's a lot more fun to preach the exciting, fun things of God. But the reality is what I'm saying today is, is, a, is, is a great, and it's not a negative, but you could take it as a negative. I first noticed this whenever I was starting in my series on Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is God speaking to Isaiah, who's relaying this message to the people. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard than I would have done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This is God asking the question, why did I have a vineyard that belonged to me and I've given it everything it needs? What else could I do? But all it's produced is wild grapes. 
Jump down to verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Did you catch that? Heroes. I can tell you there's a great a lot of things to be heroes, but I think if drinking wine, wine was the greatest thing I could do, I didn't have much. But that's what it says. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, who deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpse were his refuge in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. His hand is stretched out still. What really hit me is when I was reading this, this in the New Living Translation. Now, the New Living Translation is a very, very good translation. It, along with the ESV, in my opinion, are two of the best translations that we have today. I used to preach from NIV exclusively, but they kept changing it and, and, and changing it. So I, I changed to ESV, but I really like the New Living Translation. Now, the New Living Translation, Daniel uh, informed me of this. The reason I like it is it's simple. The New Living Translation was written for a fifth grade reader. I like that. Hey, I like things put on the bottom shelf where everybody can reach them. And the New Living Translation was written, and it is a literal translation, but it's written from the fifth grade level. And guess what that word, the New Living Translation says? His fist is poised to strike. How many can understand that? If you've ever been in, close to being in a fight, you know when somebody's fist is poised to strike, you better put up your dukes because you're getting ready to be in trouble, right? And this is God speaking through Isaiah and telling him his fist is poised to strike. Now, I, I can tell you this was not a one-time sentence. This was repeated over and over several times in the book of Isaiah. God basically said, I'm fed up with you. And the fist is poised to strike. His fist is poised to strike or his hand is stretched out still. Now, again, who is speaking here? It's Isaiah, but he is speaking for God and he is warning the people. Now, I know some of you did not have a dad like mine, but my dad would used to say, boys, you don't want me to come in there. <laughs> or he would say, you don't want me to pull off the road. Now, what did he mean? What he meant was, boys, you don't want me to come in there. 
and you don't want me to pull off the road. Those were warnings. Those were warnings because uh, somebody asked me, did your dad threaten you? He never threatened me. He just warned us. He, he never threatened me. God does not threaten us. He warns us. He warns us, and he says, you don't want me to come down there. Some of you get that after a while. Some of you say, well, was he speaking allegorical? No, he was speaking literal. Because he used the allegory when he compared it to his vineyard and the vines. That was the allegorical part. He said, listen, I've done everything I can for my vineyard. I fertilized it. I planted the best vines. I did everything that I could, but all it's producing is bad fruit. And his fist is poised against it. Isaiah's ministry covered 40 years. And most of that 40 years, he was warning God's people. Isaiah was a contemporary with Joel, Amos, and Hosea. What were their messages? Warning against God's people. Jeremiah was just a few years later. His ministry lasted 50 years. And what did he do? He warned the people for over 20 years and told them that Israel was getting ready to fall. For over 20 years, he prophesied and told them that they were going to be taken captive. And they totally ignored his message. Totally ignored it. Although he prophesied it, he spoke it. And then in the Lamentations, when he wrote that funeral dirge, and I know I've said this a lot lately, but as he wrote that funeral dirge, he was looking and seeing his city destroyed, his nation going to tubes, and he wrote that Lamentations, which is literally a funeral dirge for the city of Jerusalem. He wrote that because people ignored his warnings. He had warned the people that his fist is poised to strike. Notice what he said in Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah 15, begin reading at verse 2. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord. Those who are for pestilence to pestilence. And those who are for the sword to the sword. And those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers. In other words, his hand was poised to strike. To kill the dogs, to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on Jerusalem or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards, so I've stretched out my hand against you. The fist is poised and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork. And the gates of the land, I bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sands of the seas. 
I brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She had been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. I mentioned in the early service this morning, I had really no thought process about this being 9-11 as I prepared this message. But I think God has given us word to know that the fist is poised to strike. Noah warned the people. How long? A hundred years he warned the people. What did he warn? He said, it's going to rain. You need to get in the boat. It's going to rain. You need to get in the boat. But since it had not rained... They did not believe him. Now, I want you to think about it. God used the most trustworthy people he could find to deliver this message. He did not use Facebook. He did not use TikTok. He did not use CNN. He didn't even use Fox. He used people that he could trust. He used people that they could believe in. He used a guy by the name of Noah that the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He used Isaiah. He used Jeremiah. He used Ezekiel. To do what? To warn the people. Yet most did not believe them. They turned a deaf ear. And I know some are saying right now, Pastor, are you trying to scare us? If I need to. If I need to, because if I did not want my dad to stop the car, if I did not want him to come in there, I don't want God to come down here. Not for judgment. See, Hebrews chapter 10, notice what it says here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, we have to remember those in the Old Testament did not have the grace like we have it today. They did not know Jesus died for our sins once and for all. They did not know that, but we do. It says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a Fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. His hand is poised to strike. Do you think that Isaiah was trying to scare Israel and get their attention? Sure he was. He loved his people. He loved his nation. He loved his God, and God was giving him the message, so all he was doing was giving them the news. 
And I want to tell you, he did not do like they try to do today. I don't listen to much news anymore. I get so disgusted, they tell me the news, and then they want me to tell me what it meant. Isaiah didn't tell him what it meant. He said, this is it. The hand is poised to strike. You do with it what you want to, but the hand is poised to strike. Do you think Jeremiah might have been trying to scare his people and get their attention? He did it for 50 years. He did it for 50 years, and yet they ignored him. Ezekiel, he did it for years. They ignored him. Now, now go back to Noah. Do you think that Noah, during his 100 years of working on that ark, 100 years of doing it basically by himself and his family, do you think he might have spoken strongly and rebuked those people around him? There's probably people that got mad at Noah. Noah, would you just keep quiet? Would you quit telling us about the rain? We don't even know what rain is. And you're building a boat and you're a hundred miles from the nearest water. Noah, you're an idiot. But Noah kept telling them because probably a lot of those people he spoke the strongest to was his extended family. We know his sons got on the boat. Of course, he might have wanted to leave his mother-in-law. I'm not sure. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Forget that. Take that off the, edit that off the tape. But think about it. He probably had cousins. Probably had aunts and uncles. All of those were there. And he said, I'm building a boat and you can get in it. Because it's going to rain. Because God's hand is poised to strike. Oh, it took 100 years. I want to tell you, God was a lot more patient than my dad was. Gator, your, your dad was about like mine. He wasn't that patient, was he? His saying was, what you can't hear, you will feel. Okay. That, okay. Yeah. And he was very patriotic. He laid on the stripes and you star stars, right? Yeah. Yeah, we know that. We understand that. I can relate to that. But Noah probably spoke very, very strongly. Matter of fact, let's see what Hebrews said about that. It says, by faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, that means he was afraid for his life, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world. Now, what does it mean, condemn the world? They had a chance to get in. They missed it. They had a chance to get in. And he became heir, an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By coming, and I know some of you say, "But Pastor, we can't control everyone else." And you're exactly right. You are exactly right, but you can sound a warning. Now, I can honestly tell you that I don't ever remember my dad stopping the car. I don't ever remember my dad coming into the room where we're at. Because we had a reverential fear. In other words, we scared to death. <laughs> now, my dad never hit me with his fist. All he used was that belt. 
But I'm going to tell you, he used it well. But I do recall a few times as, as we were chatting, you know, he said, boys, you don't want me to come in there. I might have to say, David, would you please shut up? Because I got one brother that wouldn't quieten down. And I warned him because I knew if dad came in, it wasn't going to be just David. And no, we can't control anybody else. But I believe we need to warn them. I said we need to warn them. Because we can only be held accountable for ourselves. Look what it says in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14, a couple of verses, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly. Now, what does that mean? That means without faith, ignoring faith, rejecting God. And I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from its man and beast. Even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. They couldn't affect anybody else, only themselves, because the righteousness from them did not affect anybody else. See, we held accountable for each, for our own selves. I know that goes contrary to what our society today, but folks, it's time for us to live up and accept accountability for who we are and what we do. It's not everybody else's problem. It's our problem. And if we've committed that, if we've accepted that, uh, that uh, penalty, or if we've accepted that debt that we owe, listen, that's ours. We shouldn't expect other people to pay it. I knew that was going to go over that. <laughs> but it's truth. We've got to accept our own responsibility. Okay, but Pastor, that sounds... Pretty negative. You said there was some positive, then there is. Because we have hope. Well, what, what is the hope? Well, hope is two things. The first thing that gives us hope is Isaiah 54. Over toward the end of that book, Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Aren't you glad that even in the midst of our sinfulness God still loves us, He has redemption for us, and He is a, a compassionate, everlasting love. And this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that that the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphire. I will make your pinnacles 
of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. In other words, we have God's love and God's compassion that he will never, never take away from us. But then what's the other thing? I said there's two things that bring us hope. We have his love and compassion, everlasting love and compassion. Well, what else is there? How about genuine repentance? Now, you say, well, what is genuine repentance? I can tell you what genuine repentance is not. Genuine repentance is not when two kids, brothers and sisters, get in a fight. And your mama says, tell them you're sorry. How many knows that's not genuine repentance? I'm sorry. You just wait to get you outside. How many knows that? that's not genuine repentance? That's not genuine, genuine repentance. See, repentance comes from a Greek word which means a change of mind or a change of attitude. Now listen to what Ungers says about repentance. In the theological and ethical sense, a fundamental and thorough change in the hearts of men from sin and toward God. Did you get that? Change from sin toward God. Although faith alone is the condition for salvation, repentance is bound up with faith and inseparable from it, since without some measure of faith, no one can truly repent. And repentance never attains its deepest character till the sinner realizes through saving faith how great is the grace of God against whom he has sinned. Let me drop down. Repentance is a genuine sorrow toward God on account of sin. It's an inward repugnance to sin necessarily followed by the actual forsaking of it. It's a humble self-surrender to the will and service of God. Repentance, it should be observed, has different stages of development. I've got to read this first sentence because it really, I believe, is so true. In its lowest and most imperfect form, it may arise from the fear of consequences or penalty of sin. Now, growing up, I had a steady diet of the rapture of the church. Nothing wrong with that. But it scared you to death. And about every week, we got saved. Because we were what? Afraid of being left behind. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's a great start. And if you got saved, and if that's where you still are, just because you don't want to go to hell, then you've got just the very, very basic. Because true repentance takes you beyond the fearful. And takes you into a relationship with God. A true repentance gets beyond the fact, hey, I want to go to heaven. But it gets beyond just having fire insurance. Huh? It gets to a place where we want to have a relationship with God. And to, if that relationship is being hindered and we know that his fist is poised to strike. Now, most of you know I'm a very, very positive preacher. I love to talk about positive things. But I'm going to tell you what. Our country is in dire straits because many, many are ignoring the word of God. And they're pulling away from the word of God. And I can see the hand of God, the fist of God being poised. And I'm saying, you don't want me to come down there. 
Now, if we took time to read all that a while ago, you would remember that it talked about pestilence. It talked about drought. It talked about famine. All of these things. Folks, God has been so good to us. The hand of God has blessed America. But do you know what a nationwide drought would, would, would bring about? I mean, we saw that COVID shut down our trucking. Everything. The hand of God is poised. Now, does he want to bring judgment? No. He's a loving, compassionate God. He wants to bring repentance to the glory of God. I want to turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 38. And I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage. Because this was a prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. A prayer of Solomon. Now, I, I think we all understand that Solomon told them what to do, but he really didn't do what he told them to do. Because he began to what? Drift away from God. Well, let's just read a little bit of it. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you. How many agree with that? There's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping constant covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your, their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it to this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be conformed which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be opened night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor, is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in the house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of their people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to your fathers. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain, because they've sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven 
and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. And when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as inheritance, if there's a famine in the land, if there's a pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, now all of these people knew what those things meant. This was agricultural people, and they knew when, a, when the locusts came in and all their crops were devoured. They didn't have it in spare. They knew when the blight came in, the pestilence, they knew that it could bring around a plague. Whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by my, any man or by all your people in Israel, each knowing the affliction of your own heart, and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and render to each whose heart you know, according all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Now you understand what I'm saying? He knows the intent of your heart. He knows if it's sincere repentance. He understands that, that they may fear you all the days that they are live in the land that you may give to your fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward his house, to hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner called you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that you may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. I'm going to skip over the rest of that prayer and go to verse 55 or 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he's promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord, our God, be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Folks, I realize this is talking to Israel. I realize this was Solomon speaking to his people. But I believe America has been blessed by the hand of God. I believe we've been led by the hand of God. Do we have blemishes? Do we have things we're ashamed of? Most certainly. Just collectively as well as individually. But not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our father. Let these words of mine with which I've pleaded before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, as each day requires, that all the people of the earth may know. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. 
Let your heart, therefore, be holy, true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments this day. Every time America gets in a calamity, every time we face an election, you'll hear a verse come up. It's recorded in Chronicles, not Kings. But see, Second Chronicles and Kings are parallel books, one written to the north, one written to the south. And most of you can quote part of that same message that Solomon prayed. The same prayer says, if my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then we'll hear from heaven and God will heal their land. God's fist is poised to strike. And I believe revival is the only thing that's an answer to it. And the revival will not start on the streets. It will start in God's house. It will start in the pulpit. My heart was so grieved this week when I, I, I read it, came across, I read it several times. That only about 33% or a third of our ministers, not of church people, not of the general public, but only a third of our ministers in America believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Only a third believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Only a third. believe in a heaven and a hell. We need a revival. If my people. Where does that start? Repentance. Again, not just to acknowledge it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's more than forgiveness. You say, well, what do you mean? Folks, if you're not planning on leaving something behind, you're not asking forgiveness. Because you haven't repented. We need to repent. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. We're going to just sing a song. And if, if the Holy Spirit convicts you. Notice I said the Holy Spirit. I did not say me. I did not say your neighbor. But the Holy Spirit convicts you of something you need to repent of. I can't think of a better time than right now. Right now to repent. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the only way to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that begins by acknowledging that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness. On behalf of our pastor and staff here at OAG, we want to say thank you. Thank you for being a part of our ministry. We are grateful for you and the support you give our church and its ministries so that we can continue to do what God has called us to do, to be the family church for the family of God. 
For more content from Pastor Strickland and Oxford Assembly of God, check out our media website at oag.church/media.